You're listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Today's guest is the artistic director of Art of Motion Incorporated, a nonprofit and home to the Art of Motion Dance Theater. She has toured six out of seven continents and almost all of the United States. A former soloist with the Nikolai Dance Theater, she is the recipient of an International Andrew W. Mellon Cultural Exchange Fund Award and a National Dance Magazine Award for choreography. Her work has been featured at the Global TEDMED Conference held at the Kennedy Center, as well as Jacob's Pillow and the Smithsonian Museum. She has been recognized by foundations, universities, and press, including Vanity Fair, The New York Times, Women's Wear Daily, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Daily News, and The Village Voice. She earned her BA in dance from Connecticut College, where she was the recipient of the Dance Magazine National Award for Choreography. Her work, Cool Wave, featured in Dance Magazine, was performed at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Lynn Needle. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. It's such a pleasure to be here. I have a lot of questions. I don't know if I'm going to get through all of them. I'm going to go in chronological order. How long have you danced and choreographed? I've been dancing a long, long time. I guess you would say 56 years. Choreographing really ever since I was a teenager, a preteen. It was an outlet. We would play after school, obviously, you know, have neighborhood activities, and I would always choreograph in my basement, in my playroom, in my backyard. I would set pieces on friends, children in the neighborhood, put on little plays. I had an opportunity, believe it or not, in my middle school, uh, play in my high school. We mounted West Side Story, Funny Girl, some of the great larger shows. And I was able to choreograph in high school, which was wonderful to develop. A, you know, it was, I was a very, it was a young, undeveloped voice. But I always loved creating movement and organizing bodies in space. And then when I went on to college, I was fascinated by the opportunity to take scholastic courses and laboratory courses that were three hours or in excess of three hours to study composition and choreography and collaborative practices. I just want to go back to when you were four years old. Did you decide that that's what you wanted to do, or did your parents have some indication that that's what you should try to do? No, I think it was, I was very self-directed. I always wanted to dance. I loved it. I always said I had an arrow in my heart pointing to New York City. I just knew I wanted to perform. I had many accidents as a child. I broke eight different bones. I was in ski accidents, skating, jump rope, car accidents. And I was obviously a very physical child. My kind of more um, virtuosic attempts at <laughs> Jumping and sleigh riding and bike riding at high speeds uh, resulted in various falls. When Every time I broke a bone or had stitches, I always healed. I never missed my ballet class. I would go to class with a cast on. The times were different where your parents would just kind of send you out to play for hours on end and you had to be home for dinner when it got dark out. And there was a lot more outdoor activity, very, very physical, running, playing tag, running bases, jump rope, etc. Our creative play was very, very, not necessarily weather-centric, but very much about movement, very, very physical movement. So I always was fascinated by uh, how people move, whether it was football players or soccer players or tennis or ice skaters. My mom was actually a national roller skate champion. 
I was lucky to hear her stories about touring the country as a roller skate pairs. She traveled with a male partner and competed in, in roller skating, which very ironically has returned as a very popular sport right now. I think my mind just always had a busy imagination. I still, to this day, like I woke up today with a new concept to start a new piece. And just like you being on radio, I, you know, I don't know if you ever know what words are going to come to you in your next sentence, but it's sort of an organic reality that these ideas, these movement ideas come to you sometimes in the middle of the night, in a dream, in a conversation. You'll see a beautiful piece of art. You'll get motivated by the garden, etc. And that usually gives birth to creating a new piece and, and choreographing something that is relevant to the times in which we live. I was going to ask you if as a child you had a role model that you try to emulate, perhaps your mother must have been a role model because roller skating seems closely attuned to to dance. Absolutely, and she did. She did actually have to study uh, dance, of course, ballet to augment her her roller skating. So yes, my mother was absolutely a mentor, as were my grandmothers. My uh, father's mother was a Polish immigrant, Kunigunda Kunigunda Lesniak, and. She was the mother of seven. She came to this country with my Polish grandfather and um, had seven children. So she was uh, sort of a domestic goddess, you know, cooking and taking care of seven children. And my mother was an only child. Her mother was a consummate artist, came from very little, and made everything. She would cook and crochet and sew and paint. If it was something that you needed, you, you would never buy it. You would make it. You would create it. And many times he would create it out of remnants, you know, maybe torn curtains or an old dress would be reimagined into a beautiful pillow on the couch or a scarf to wear. So there was never any waste in my family. There was always mindfulness to to repurpose, recycle, reuse, reimagine, because we just had to, you know, my father had to spread the wealth among a family of nine. And my mother came from very limited means. Her father was a truck mechanic, and it was an incredibly celebratory, fun, creative household. My professional mentors, of course, my dance teacher was my mentor, Annette McKenna. She was my um, early childhood dance teacher who I studied with from age 4 to 17. But in those years, he would go to New York City to dance conventions that were at the Waldorf Historia, the larger hotels, and that's where you would study with Luigi and, you know, uh, some of the bigger names from New York City Ballet and the big, you know, Broadway jazz artist, Anne Reiking, who we just lost uh, about a month ago. And I would take master classes with these luminaries and be very, very uh, impacted by the very high example that they would set as teachers. So I think that's where my kind of appetite got teased in terms of being introduced to the art of teaching and the magic of teaching and giving back. When I studied once a week, which eventually became three times a week as a child, and then, of course, went on to a college study and a conservatory study, you know, you eventually, of course, study every single day, seven days a week at the professional level. If you're not studying and taking class, you're rehearsing and preparing for performance. And not only are you studying, but according to your bio, you've done a lot of traveling and performed in all but one continent. Which continent have you not performed in? Antarctica. It's on my bucket list. And uh, later on, I want to talk about your site-specific venues. Do you have any ideas for a site-specific piece for Antarctica? Actually, I do. It's such a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, You know, life is very cyclical. Um, You know, the Lion King, obviously the message of the Lion King is the circle of life, Hakuna Matata. 
And one of my uh, devoted Pilates students is a retired high school teacher. She taught for more than 35 years in the Nutley High School system, a history teacher, Jerry Cohen. She takes my Pilates class for years. And she's in her retirement as an avid hiker and traveler. And of course, she went on the trip with her husband to Antarctica recently. It was about a year and a half ago. So I said, oh, my goodness, you're going to be my, my mentor. What was it like? And of course, it was a cruise. You know, it involved boat travel as well as flying. You know, it would have to be weather-specific, site-specific, temperature-specific. Another colleague of mine was able to perform, and you have to work with the conditions and the weather and the costuming, et cetera. And I think my dream would be to do something definitely on the ice and or the snow. Uh, I'd really love to do aerial work where you came out of a helicopter, so there was an air moment descending from a helicopter in a harness, of course, and then probably would be a pas de deux, and your partner would have to be maybe somebody from the military or the Coast Guard that could guide you to Earth and do something on an ice kind of stage, if you will. And it would be very brief because of the weather. You know, whatever it was would have to be very brief. It couldn't be, I would think, longer than, you know, two to four or five minutes. And then just kind of disappear into the ether chakra, you know, maybe disappear through a cloud or do something that really brought attention to you know, modern dance should reflect the times in which we live. And if you disappeared into the clouds or the sky, it might bring even more attention to global warming and the importance of that we all need to be clear and observant in how we consume, how we deal with our waste, the choices we make, and how we recycle and how we could just be better participants in a global economy and in a global world. You mentioned earlier about all of the accidents that you had skiing, etc. Would you be doing something like this on skates or have you not tried using skates for any of your performances? That's, that's so interesting that you ask that. I think if I ever performed on ice, I would choreograph and set it on a virtuosic skater because I would want to create something probably much more complicated than I could I could perform myself on skates because it's not my, my medium. But as a choreographer, as you know, as a composer, you can write music maybe that isn't even your instrument of choice. One of my dreams is definitely to to set a piece on skis also and maybe have like, I have a solo called Monarch where I use 16-foot in diameter Monarch butterfly wings and I would love to perform that on skis because it would be like a kite, having your wingspan kind of just blow in the wind as you cascade down the mountain on on skis. I downhill ski, I don't snowboard. Uh, I grew up skiing. and loved it and always kind of hid it from my artistic director. Really, my mentor in my later professional years, of course, was Alan Nikolai uh, and Murray Lewis. And Nick was known for, you know, being a master of performing, um, you know, in site-specific areas around the world and really the master of multimedia. And um, I always say Art of Motion Dance Theater performs on all terrains. You met Alan by helping him write his book? with your typing skills? I actually met Nick through Murray uh, when I got the Dance Magazine Award. Murray Lewis was one of the three adjudicators, along with Pauline Koner from the Graham Company and Clay Taliaferro, a soloist in the Limon Company. The three of them were the national adjudicators that brought us to the Kennedy Center. And when I met Murray, uh, part of that performance um, honor and the coverage in the magazine was, um, thank goodness, to uh, to receive critique. So we had private critique from those three seasoned professionals. And when in the critique session, which was live, and, you know, back in the day I recorded it on my cassette tape, which was great that I had a record of it. And he said, oh, my gosh, please 
be my guest and come and take class. Nick is looking for dancers. He may hold an audition, but if you're the right fit, we're going on tour in two weeks to Portugal on a State Department tour. Please add my invitation. So, of course, I, you know, I was so honored and uh, it was so unexpected. And I went and was and took class. And after class, Nick invited me um, to come to rehearsal. And I, I, I misunderstood. I thought he wanted me to come and do backstage work and help sweep and run sound and do, you know, tech work. And he said, no, 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 I want you to learn roles. We're going to Portugal in two weeks. And I was in rehearsal every day, eight to 10 hour day rehearsals for two weeks. And we actually started at the Globe Theater in Boston, did a run out to Fargo, North Dakota and to test the material. And then we were on tour for um, two months in uh, starting at Gulbenkian, the Gulbenkian Foundation in, um, in uh, Portugal. Uh, Lisbon, of course, uh, and that tour went to, you know, Madeira, Spain, France, Germany, Italy, etc. It was quite quite an experience. You also had a venue in Las Vegas. I, I think it was called the Dance in the Desert Festival. And yes. I think you described dance, described it as ephemeral. What did you mean by that? Murray Lewis always um, defined dance as an ephemeral art form. And I think that's so true now in the pandemic more than ever that ephemeral is really anything in life that's here in the moment, like this interview is ephemeral. And then it's not gone forever because you're recording it. So your listeners will have the benefit, hopefully, of listening to it or sharing it with someone else and listening to it thanks to social media again and again. But in live dance performance, when you're watching it, you can never, ever see that again. You can see a recording of it, which, of course, is media then and is reduced to a two-dimensional art form where, you know, your TV screen or the movies or, you know, you have the height and the width, but you don't have the depth. And we always consider live performance as a three-dimensional art form with height, width, and depth. So any performance any actor or dancer on in live theater does is ephemeral because it can never ever be repeated exactly the same way there's always nuances that are different perhaps your leg extension is higher or your turn four times in one performance and only a triple turn you know the next performance perhaps the music uh, was you know the, uh, the, uh, the the volume of the music was a little bit different and the lighting cues were a little different so that's why I love 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 live performance because it's so predictable yet unpredictable at the same time. Not to mention the audience feedback that you get for each performance. Oh, exactly. You can get, you know, a standing ovation on a Saturday night and then on a Sunday matinee, maybe get a calmer audience that's more reverent, more calm, maybe doesn't, um, you know, display as much verbal uh, excitement, um, you know, if they're, if they're audible, uh, applauding. And in Europe, people obviously would say bravo from time to time, which was such a nice response. And it was hard earned. You know, Nick always said, if you had a standing ovation, it was our obligation to understand what we did in that performance to earn that standing ovation and make sure it happened again. You know, you could always uh, attain that and reach for that goal. It doesn't mean, as you said, because the audience is an unknown, the, the mix of the audience is unknown. Um, and again, the audience, it, that, that is absolutely ephemeral as well. But the Vegas, um, the Vegas Festival is so special because the uh, founder, Kelly Roth, and Leslie Roth, his ex-wife, they're a power couple out there. And he knew Alan Nikolai and Murray Lewis very well. He came from Las Vegas to study at the Dance Lab in New York City, which was on 18th Street, 33 East 18th Street. Anyway, he came and studied in the late 70s, and I met him there in the early 80s. 
And then Murray uh, encouraged him to go and become, if he could, the head of a, a dance department and keep the legacy of the technique alive in a scholastic setting. And sure enough, he did that and was very influential in the Vegas demographic, which you know is filled with Cirque du Soleil artists and big industrial, you know, from Celine Dion to Broadway shows that tour out there, et cetera, the, the big acts, as we call them on the strip. But there are also dancers and choreographers that want to create work that um, maybe isn't performed um, on the live strip in, in Vegas. And he started this festival about 25 years ago called the Dance in the Desert that comes with um, a Lifetime Achievement Award, which I was very honored to receive and uh, perform in. And I've been out there for two of the festivals and was featured this year in their virtual festival. You mentioned Murray Lewis and uh, that he, uh, did he first see your work in Las Vegas? Oh, no, no. Uh, he actually first saw my work at the Boston Conservatory. And is, and that, is, is that where he, he said you were wild and risque? Uh, he, yes, he did. What did he, he did. mean What did he mean by that? <laughs> well, it's uh, to bring music into the fold. The piece that I had choreographed uh, called Cool Wave was a direct response and reaction to my semester abroad in London. And I studied at the Trinity Laban Conservatory, which was like the Juilliard of London, during my junior year abroad. And it was at the height of the punk rock movement. It was in 1979. And I was very, very impacted by the punk movement, not just from a social, political, and um, economic point of view, but from a fashion point of view and an, and an anger point of view, because the youth obviously were very, very angry. And it came out in the punk rock music, of course. And I started working on a new group piece with three men and three women called a sextet. I set it to um, the B-52s, to a very elusive choreographer who's no longer with us, Edgar Verez, who's a composer originally from New York City from the Lower East Side of Music Concrete, and Sting, the male British artist Sting. So I did a collage, a sound score that was a collage of music. And I really credit the Connecticut College Music Library because at the time they were very ahead of their time and had a very sophisticated music library with headphones. And we were able to edit music back then where, you know, college students now can do that on, you know, iMovie on their iPhone and they can create their own sound scores, cut, paste, delete, you know, and do things on their laptops. Years and years ago, as you know, we didn't have that amenity. We didn't have that technology. We had to work with the, you know, the person in person with the music librarian to be able to cut music. Murray had never seen anything that was so edgy. And also, I have to confess, we smoked on stage, which of course wasn't allowed, isn't allowed now in theater because of the look of the dancers trying to emulate the punk rock movement. They were costumed in black leather jackets and high top Converse sneakers and they had ripped clothing on, et cetera, and dark coal-eyed makeup and, you know, very exaggerated makeup and haircuts, et cetera. And the opening lighting cue was a blacked-out stage at the Kennedy Center. We did this, and everybody had an inhale on a cigarette, so you saw the tip of the cigarette, you know, that yellow light that you can't duplicate. Of course, if I did it now, I'd have to have something synthetic because of, um, you know, rules, union rules, of course. I have to tell you, our season at the Kennedy Center, Marshall, was two nights, we came in for the second show and all of our costumes were thrown out. The um, union uh, custodial crew at the Kennedy Center thought that our costumes were garbage and they threw them out because they were so tattered and torn and ripped because of the punk rock aesthetic. 
And we had draped them artfully backstage on the dressing room chairs. And when the crew came in to clean the dressing rooms, they, they misinterpreted them for garbage. So we had to run out to the local drugstores and pharmacies and buy T-shirts and stockings and rip them up and create costuming for a second night. Well, it was a very, very funny story. Speaking of costumes, and you mentioned earlier Monarch, you seem to utilize uh, a variety of costume styles, a, a minimalist style, perhaps, for uh, some of your pieces. And uh, who does your costumes? How do you uh, figure out what the costume is going to look like? Who's going to work on it? Well, the costumes, of course, are uh, often collaborative. And as you mentioned, it's uh, so astute that um, the minimal costumes, <laughs> historically, I think Palabolus was the most famous for this, and then Nick also, but Nick predated Palabolus, of course. Palabolus was given birth because of Nick supporting him and Murray. But um, uh, some companies were known to have very little costuming and elaborate lighting because they just saved money. Costuming can be very expensive. But some of my minimalist costumes are really to reflect the body is an instrument, so if we wear a simple leotard or unitard, just kind of masking the body, kind of upholstering the body with a simple fabric, it really reveals um, the artistry of, uh, and the, um, the vocabulary of the choreography, the, the vernacular, if you will. My more complicated costumes, uh, design and construction, was by Annie Hickman, and I had a very long collaborative relationship with Annie Initially, Kent Lindemer, who was one of my partners from Palabolus, a principal in Palabolus Dance Theater, uh, knew Annie from the yoga community, and he introduced us. And she initially created a, t- a hand tie-dyed costume for a duet that we did, which premiered at the Chaconi Theater, Brigham Community College, where I know you're a professor and I'm an adjunct professor as well. I know there's several colleagues that we have in the music uh, and dance de- and theater department there that are really stellar artists. So I've had a wonderful, wonderful experience collaborating where Annie has created large-scale costuming reflecting our work, which is rooted in legend, myth, and nature. And then Karen Skogland, who also recreated some historic costumes that I had that also inadvertently got thrown out. I performed the work of Claudia Gittleman, who uh, died about a decade ago. And her estate inadvertently threw out some very valuable costuming. And through sketches and videos, I was able to have Karen recreate some of those beautiful dresses for Claudia's solos that I'm I'm fortunate to have performed at the American Dance Guild Festival in New York City, at Alvin Ailey, and several other special venues at Rutgers and uh, NYU, etc. So costuming is very important for the dancer because you have to be comfortable in it. You have to be able to move without hindrance without any worry or concern with a certain abandon and it has to reflect lighting it has to stay up to wear and tear for touring and um, it has to reflect the content of what the subject matter is of what the uh, the, the work is if you were to guide a four-year-old who might be interested in dance what does a four-year-old have to start working towards uh, achieving in order to become a dancer? What I would recommend, certainly to the child, and I'm actually working with a six-year-old tomorrow who is a a hip-hop prodigy, really incredible, is I would encourage them to move as much as they can, give them space at home to, you know, create a little studio space. It doesn't necessarily have to have mirrors, but have something that can offer a music outlet, whether it's an iPhone, iPad, a old-fashioned boombox, or certainly a recording um, mechanism, a, 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 you know, some source of, of music is ideal. 
and also, um, you know, inspirational. I would curate them, of course. I wouldn't let them go go wild on social media and YouTube. But in, as you said, inspirational uh, content that they can observe um, to watch for ideas and just to inspire them and then let them creatively, obviously taking classes, ideal to learn a technique, whether it's classical ballet, modern dance, jazz, tap, hip hop, etc. A lot of children begin with something indigenous to their culture, like Irish tap dance or um, step dance. There's so many different folkloric dance, whether it's Mexican or, um, you know, Indian or, or Chinese cultural dance. If it's a four-year-old and they're impacted by their family and their culture, maybe, my, you know, my background is mostly Polish, English, and Irish with a little German, just encourage them to move, do it daily, do it weekly, do it with some sort of discipline for sure. Class should be every week at the same time for a minimum of 45 minutes to an hour hour at that age, an hour is long for a four-year-old, and then just cultivate the love for it. You know, years ago, you would only dance three seasons, and you would take the summer off, but now I think the children are doing, starting to do things more year-round, and if they need to take a rest from it and maybe explore another movement, art form or an athletic uh, outlet, you know, encourage that as well, because all of those resources and outlets are building muscle strength and agility and awareness and learning how to listen. It's very important to learn how to listen when you're uh, a dancer because you need to take instruction, observe, self-critique, observe those around you, understand patterns in space, understand, obviously, I would definitely encourage them to study a musical instrument, learn how to read music. It's a a thrill. Right now there's so much virtual content, but I grew up once a year being able to go to a Broadway play or a ballet. My parents would take me once a year. So, you know, by the time you're 16 or 17, you've probably been to about a dozen Broadway plays or New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, etc. The reason I became a modern dancer really is when I was 13 or 14, they took me to see Tommy, the rock opera Tommy by The Who, that was uh, performed by the Toronto Dance Theatre and the Canadian Ballet. It was at City Centre in New York City. And I saw that performance of Tommy, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I I want to do this. I want who created this. I want to be able to choreograph and create work uh, like this on stage where characters like the Acid Queen and Tommy the Pinball Wizard, where these characters came to life in three-dimensional form. And I love the Who's music, Pete Townsend and and Twistle, and I just love, love, love their music. So that was really a pivoting trigger moment for me to want to become a modern dancer was seeing that rock opera. Believe it or not, we have come to the end of our show, and I had another three shows worth of questions for you. I just want the listeners to know that you have a school in your hometown of Ridgewood, New Jersey, and perhaps uh, you can tell us how we can contact you if uh, we have a four-year-old or a young person or an old person who who would like to learn some of the skills that you can teach there. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I teach many things, obviously modern dance, composition at uh, Bergen Community College. So people are welcome to study uh, at Bergen Community College and just go to the uh, college website. And I also teach Pilates. I'm a registered yoga teacher 500. I've been teaching yoga for over 20 years also teach Broadway musical theater jazz and tap. I've taught through the Ridgewood Community Schools for more than 20 years and also teach through my nonprofit, Art of Motion, and also in studio in Ridgewood at Heart in Motion Studios where we offer CDC guideline um, 
classes that are both live at the studio and remote um, on the Zoom platform. So those classes can be private, semi-private, or in a group format. And of course, as you said, they're for preschool. We say we like to say preschool through the professional level. Is there a website where someone can go and? Uh... Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes, they can go to artofmotion.org or AOMDT for Art of Motion Dance Theater, AOMDT.org, and they all have information on it and links to the heartinmotionstudios.com website. What I like to do if anyone's interested is I like to have a, you know, a live conversation or email trail to get to know the student a little better, what their needs are, what their wishes are, and then I can better guide them to, uh, you know, a good a good fit. Because you always want to have, I think, a good, healthy, uh, dynamic, and open dialogue with a teacher, whether it's your piano teacher, your dance teacher, your violin, you know, teacher, and, you know, try to guide parents or students to a class setting that's really uh, comfortable for them and the right level. Because we also have what I call rusty dancers, dancers that maybe danced 20 years and then stopped and got into a different profession. And now they want to return to ballet class or their jazz class and they're nervous to return. It's like falling off a horse and, you know, horseback riding again. You need someone to encourage you. And we have wonderful adult classes to encourage people that might want to start to dance again. Even some of my company members are actually excellent ballroom teachers. So I've coached people for their weddings and choreographed duets for weddings. And I like to do anything to help people to move. (laughs) Lynn Needle, I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to speak with me. And I want to thank you again, and I hope to hear from you again real soon. I do look forward to it. You've been listening to Mr. Radio with music by Ululation. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio. Mr. Radio.